0: March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81
1: minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, The heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant.
0: In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. What's up, Lance? What is going on? How are you today? I'm doing well. We're almost halfway through the season, Lance. But here we are, yep. back in the saddle with uh, a great guest. Her name is Shayna Roth,
1: and... Remember back in season one when we had a sort of mid-season break in the actual heist talk and we spoke with Liz Lenz, who is an Isabella Stewart Gardner enthusiast? Uh, This is sort of similar. I always like these a little bit of a calm before the storm on the Sea of Galilee type episodes. Ooh, I see what you did there. Very, very clever this morning. Shayna wrote a book that is being released today from Ulysses
0: Press. It is called Cold Cases, A True Crime Collection. That's right. I pre-ordered this one, Lance. I can't wait. I should be getting it now. It goes into a lot of different cases, and the overall theme of the book is cold cases, but she wrote an entire chapter on the Gardner heist. So the full title is Cold Cases, A True Crime Collection, Unidentified Serial Killers, Unsolved Kidnappings, and Mysterious Murders. But again, there is the chapter on the Gardner heist, which is great. Right, and it's fun to talk to her because she's
1: just coming fresh off of her research. She had to do some limited research. Uh, Like she said, she had uh, limited research in this because she needed to get all of these cases put into one collection. But it is definitely something that she wants to look into uh, a lot more. She is an investigative journalist for the Grand Rapids Press, so she is not unfamiliar with digging deep into uh, crimes and, and investigations.
0: Yeah, she's really impressive. I can't wait to read the book. And so you can get that today. And there's a link in the show notes for that. And follow her on Twitter as well. At Shana underscore R. Okay, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.
1: And that episode in two weeks, Tim, contains the... I don't need to tell you this. It contains the best theory we've heard as to the perpetrators and the motivation behind the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist.
0: We are being joined now by Shayna Roth, author of Cold Cases, a True Crime Collection. How's it going, Shayna?
2: I'm doing really great. How are you guys doing?
1: We are doing excellent. So excited to talk to you because there comes a point in our seasons of Empty Frames where we have a guest on that isn't a a person of interest in the in the heist itself um somebody who is more of a neutral party someone who's has a particular talent and yours happens to be writing and this book which is due out oh i think it's due out today uh the day that this is this episode's being released so this this book uh you were gracious enough to give us the chapter which you depict your research and and uh, a, a history of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, Heights. So we love this moment in the season to have someone like you on.
2: <laughs> well, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, was very excited to to hear about you guys and to hear about your interest in uh, in my work. I know you guys have done extensive work on this case, so hopefully I can add a little something something to it.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. I I want to talk real quick about your book, which is out. Um, just reading the chapter that you uh, allowed us to read was awesome, and thank you. Uh, makes makes me want to. Um, Tim, I think you pre-ordered it, right? You're, you've already.
0: I sure did. Yeah. If we're really playing this game, it should have it should have arrived at my house today. <laughs>
2: <laughs> my publisher appreciates that, as do I.
0: <laughs> well, I can't. I can't wait to read it. But really, though, not the jokey voice. I really want to read it. No. No. Tim, Tim
1: has been uh, devouring true crime books and other books lately, and this is right up his alley. Why did you decide to write a true crime collection and which, I mean, there's a lot of true crime cases out there. Why did you pick the cases you picked?
2: Yeah, so how this all came about is very different from how it usually happens. Uh, usually if a person wants to write a nonfiction book, they put together a book proposal and then they sort of send it out and are asking publishers to, to let them, you know, make this book real or they self-publish it. And in this case, I was actually approached by Ulysses Press. Uh, I had been a member of a Facebook group, um, and they are a publisher that is does things a little bit different. They come up with ideas for books, and then they look for the right person to write that book. Um, and it's a sort of model that's unique, but has been very successful for them. And I was actually in, uh, I believe, Iceland at the time. I was on a cruise with my husband. We were going to Ireland and Iceland, and I was thumbing through some downloaded email messages, and I saw that uh, a an editor from Ulysses had emailed me and was like, hey, we're working on this project. We want to do a bunch of cold cases. We wanted to have this sort of conversational tone to it, and we think you would be a great person to write it. And so, uh, of course, this was a time when I didn't have email um, or internet access. So I'm just, you know, kind of tooling around uh, in Iceland going, I need to get to some Wi-Fi real quick so I can respond to them and say, yes, I'm very interested in doing this. Um, So yeah, so I, you know, got to some some Wi-Fi and reached out to them and we were able to, to touch base and kind of talk about the project and what they had in mind. There were a few cases that they really wanted to include. They really wanted to include the Golden State Killer, which actually is now probably not considered an, a cold case, but at the time it was. Um, they wanted to include the Zodiac Killer. They wanted to include John Benet Ramsey. Um, but the other ones, they pretty much left up to me and allowed me to kind of pick and choose which ones I was interested in. And I wanted it to be more than murder. I wanted it to be more than disappearances. I wanted it to be something that kind of touched on different types of unsolved cases. So it also includes D.B. Cooper, the, the rogue outlaw who jumped from a plane with a bunch of cash. Um, and it also included the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, which I thought was just a fascinating uh, art heist that I had never heard of and that a lot of people I know had never heard of. So I really wanted to include that one.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. I I love the, the thread of cold cases and you kind of examine a lot of different kinds. Um, but I have to say I'm, I'm extremely insulted that you're saying that the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum heist isn't a popular crime. I almost threw this book across the room. <laughs>
2: At least in my neck of the woods. You know, I think it's something that, you know, in the in the Boston area was was very well known, very popular. Um, And I think that for real true crime junkies, people who look into it beyond murder, who are fascinated with all types of unsolved crimes, um, they might be familiar with this. But this was something that, you know, I was asking some friends of mine and, you know, just people I know of different age ranges of different experiences, like, hey, I'm thinking of including this case. Have you heard of it? And they were like, I've never heard of it. But as soon as I told them a little bit about it, they were fascinated by it. So I think it's definitely something that deserves to have a lot more attention because it's such a fascinating case.
1: When you start talking about the case, to your friends, where do you start? Do you start right there at the night of the of the heist itself or do you give a little background like like you did with your writing about Isabella Stewart Gardner and and the the area and and her house that she turned into a museum?
2: I start with the 10 million dollar reward because <laughs> I think that's I think that's like one of the fascinating things about it is that there's still this incredible amount of money that's out there and we still haven't been able to figure out what happened. So I kind of start there. I'm like, "Hey, did you know that if you can solve this case, you could get 10 million dollars?" Uh, and then from there, I mostly explain uh, just sort of how it came about that there was really no security for the museum uh that it just happened that these guys walked in you know tied up the two security guards and just sort of had a run of the place for for quite a while i mean it was such a long time that they were in the museum which was another thing that really fascinated me when you hear about crimes taking place, particularly robberies and other types of theft, it's it's very much like, we got to get in, we got to get out, we got to go. But this one, I mean, they were in there, what, what was it, 72 minutes? And it was, you know, to just be kind of tooling around there for so long, you know, collecting their artworks that they were interested in. I, I thought that was just so riveting and just kind of amazing. Like, what exactly were they doing for that long of a period of time?
1: Yeah, they were, they were gallivanting around. They, <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I just think of that scene in uh, the original Tim Burton Batman movie where the Joker is going around the museum and he's like messing everything up and he's got music playing. I kind of picture them doing something like that.
0: Yeah, you're right. There is like this playful feeling to it when you hear 81 minutes that these these thieves were in there. How? The, what the hell were they doing?
2: Exactly. I mean, because it, it couldn't have taken that long to take all of the artwork from the frames. I mean, it's just and especially if they had planned it for so long, which it sounds like they had definitely been planning this for for quite a while they had everything kind of in place they had their ducks in a row so it shouldn't they should not have needed that long to to gather all the art that they took
1: no you're right they they shouldn't have needed that long but they knew they had that long they knew that they had all night there there was no urgency to complete the task at hand and they probably were having a bit of fun in there and they they probably were doing a bit of uh I wasn't even kidding like gallivanting Mm -hmm. and it is uh, a little bit that that flies a little bit in the face of some of the theories that are out there I'm just curious to get your opinion the obvious theory is that Boston gangsters under the direction perhaps of Whitey Bulger but um, Whitey has maintained consistently that he has known nothing about the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum heist but the, uh, the you know the theories are Boston gangsters, local toughs went in there and perpetrated this crime, but that, that flies in the face of the time that they were in there. What's your thoughts on that? Because I feel like the gangsters would go in and smash and grab like gangsters do.
2: A 100%. I mean, I think on some level, it could potentially be supported by sort of just how they cut the pictures out of the frame, you know, that shows a bit a level of sort of not caring or not understanding how to take care of this art on some level. But I mean, I really can't imagine that you would have, you know, these, like you said, these, you know, street tough guys coming in and being like, Oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wander around the museum, you know, for upwards of an hour, just, you know, kind of picking and choosing my artwork and taking what I want. And, and just spending all of that time. I mean, I think, seasoned criminals know like I got to go in and I got to get out and get away from it as much as possible as quickly as possible but at the same time I mean I'm sure that this person had to have been seasoned in a different way like they must have known that that they had that time on their hands that they didn't need to you know run in and run out because the alarms were not going to go off so it shows that there was this level of planning and preparation and knowledge of what was going on within the museum and how the museum worked but I guess still with this sort of playful, laissez-faire attitude around it, which is just what makes it so fascinating.
0: Right, there's a confidence, sort of a cockiness to that amount of time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I really like the fact that you use the word laissez-faire with in in
1: regards to this heist. I, it's a perfect word to use with the the behavior of these uh, criminals.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's like the only way I can think of how to describe it. I mean, just the way they walked around and they spent so much time in the different rooms and they were very sort of careful about what they were choosing. But I mean, these the, everything points to the actions of somebody who was not in a rush, who was not thinking that they were going to get caught and who was really, it seems like not really concerned with getting caught.
0: Yeah, and this brings up the obvious um blue room incident where the Che Tortoni was taken off the wall and apparently the motion sensors were working properly that night, and so that kind of means that one of the guards uh might have taken that off of the wall in the blue room. how do you feel about this one?
2: I mean, it's just it's 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 all kind of right up there. I mean, it just I mean the the whole issue with the uh, with the motion sensors is not troubling, but it's it's so confounding to me, like that there's these sections of time where the we know that they're in there, but the motion sensors aren't really going off. And so you kind of lose track of where they are for certain periods of time. And it just kind of goes to show that you can't necessarily trust on some level, even what your eyes are telling you, I guess, when it comes to this case. So if we're following the motion sensors, those don't even always make sense, even though it's technology and it's something that we're used to saying, oh, okay, you know, it's recorded and we know where where things are going and what's happening. You can't maybe even necessarily trust that in this case.
1: Yeah, for real, because everything about this, again, flies in the face of what is typical with a uh, museum heist. And the fact that the perpetrators just, very dramatically announced that there are you know gentlemen's this is a robbery i mean that's that 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 in itself is so theatrical one might think that these were students of the theater or something
2: yes yes and that's why i kind of think it's definitely not definitely but it's probably not you know the sort of mafia gangster type but then it makes you wonder like what type of criminal would it be? I mean, it it feels so much more like, like a movie, like, like not like criminals that exist in reality, but in, but the type of criminal that you would paint for some sort of art heist caper movie where it's some sort of suave debonair um, cat burglar who comes in and takes care, you know, and takes all of these art heists. I mean, you can't, I can't picture and maybe it's just because I, I was a prosecuting attorney for too long, so my imagination of real uh, criminals has gotten tainted a little bit. But I can't picture the type of person who is actually doing this, who, you know, in reality, you know what I mean?
0: Right. I mean, there's contradictions everywhere. What is going on?
2: Yeah. I mean, they were just the, whoever they were, were people who, man, I, 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 would love to know what other crimes they have done, you know, and and you know, like, is this their first art heist? Have they have they stolen things before, um, you know? Did they do other types of things, or was this sort of like their first time? And this was like, you know, a sort of love long project, and they you know grew up watching. Uh, heist movies and fell in love with it and were like I'm going to pull off the perfect crime that's what I mean if I was writing the fictional version of this that that's who my main, main thief would be you know somebody who grew up on a steady diet of heist movies and heist books and was like I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to you know create the perfect heist and you know steal millions of dollars in art and just get away with it
0: right Lance, it's 2021. Things are looking brighter overall in a lot of ways,
2: but it's
0: been up and down lately, especially last year. And is there anything in particular that interferes with your happiness?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of things interfere with my happiness and, and prevent me from achieving the goals that I set out to do. You know, uh, anything from the topics that we discuss on this show, the true crime topics or, you know, anything that's going on in the world today. Obviously, it's going to have some impact on my happiness and and preventing me from achieving my goals. How about you?
0: Well, I would say the same, but I have experienced something incredible, something called BetterHelp. And they assist me and they matched me with my own licensed professional therapist. And I connected with her in a safe and private online environment. Right. We are very lucky to have BetterHelp as our sponsor for this show
1: Like you said, you connect in a safe and private environment, you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours, and it's not self-help, it's professional counseling.
0: And I can send a message anytime, and they'll get right back to me uh, with a thoughtful response, and then we schedule a weekly video or phone session. And you really hate
1: waiting rooms, as we all know, you're famous for your hatred of waiting rooms. This, you can totally avoid the waiting room. There's no need to sit around and wait. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed.
0: Well, that's right, Lance. It makes it easier on me because of the waiting room thing. And I could just send a text and I don't even have to like wait around for a while. I'll just put my phone down and deal with it later, you know, whenever I feel like it. But they have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, sleeping, trauma. Anything you share
1: on any topic is totally confidential. This is convenient. It's professional. It's affordable. And if you don't believe us, check out the testimonials
0: they post daily on their site. And it's not a crisis line. And in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So we want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com slash Empty Frames.
1: Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Empty Frames
0: now but as a prosecuting attorney do you think this is a clue that or as a former prosecuting attorney that do you think it's a clue about the the motion sensors in the blue room does this add up together that uh the thieves it took them like 25 minutes to tie up the guards before they hit the uh the next motion sensor
2: yeah, I mean I can't imagine that it actually took them 25 minutes to tie up the guards. I mean, yes, they did a really, you know, a thorough job with the duct tape, the picture of the the one poor guard with all of his curly hair, and that's just burned into my brain forever, the poor guy. But it does kind of make you wonder if the guards were involved. So if they're not spending all of that time tying them up and putting them downstairs you know, are they strategizing? Are they there and kind of figuring some stuff out and having a talk before they get onto the business at hand is, is a question that I had. But of course, obviously, we don't have any proof or know for sure that this was an inside job that these guards or other guards or anybody else involved in the museum um, was, was involved in the heist. But it does make you wonder what exactly were they doing for that long of a period of time down there.
0: What about the frame, the Che Tortoni frame left on the security guard's chair? Do you think you could?
2: Oh, I love that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's got to be a taunt to, uh, to the museum, right?
2: Yes, yes. I was going to mention that. Yes, that's just another you know, sign pointing to the attitude and the sort of craziness of the people who, who pulled off this heist. I mean, that is the definitive na 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 right there you know they're like we're gonna pull off this art and you know just to sort of really stick it to you we're gonna leave the frame an empty frame on your desk i mean it's just it's it's so perfect
1: do you think that that might be indicative of it being an inside job that one of the employees it might have been a little bit more personal
2: I think so. I mean, it does feel personal, you know, it does make that feel personal. You know, if you're going to go through that extent to, to sort of, you know, twist the knife a little further, it does seem personal. Um, It reminds me of another case in the book, which is the uh, mad butcher of Kingsbury run, which was um, also known as the torso murders where he left a, he would leave notes to the inspector, Elliot Ness, um, you know, after the fact, after he had you know been released, and Elliot Ness was convinced that he had done it, that he had you know dismembered all these people and was leaving body parts all over Cleveland, um, or Kingsbury Run rather. And it's just, it's one of those things where it gets per. In that case, it was clearly something that was getting personal. You know, he left one of the bodies almost right outside the police officer's uh, station. And then after he had been interrogated and then released, he sent, you know, taunting notes to Elliot Ness. I mean, you do that sort of thing when it becomes personal and when your ego has gotten so big that you think, I just cannot be caught. So, of course, I'm going to, you know, just sort of rub that salt on the wound even more. And that's what it feels like in this case, that for whatever reason, they had either something else to prove, or they just really had that high ego thinking I could never get caught. Um, And maybe too, it was it was personal. And like they had something to, you know, something against the security guards, or the museum itself. I mean, it may have just been some sort of a um, taunt to museum lovers in general, like, look at your precious works of art, look what I can do.
1: Well, Shana, you certainly piqued my interest there with the uh, Elliot Ness case. I'm not sure if you're aware we have another podcast that's wildly popular called Crawl Space that uh, we feature a bunch of different cases. So feel free to hop on those airwaves and uh, talk about any one of the cases coming up in your book uh, on the 14th. So that is an open door invitation.
2: I will do the circuit, guys.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Just our show. <laughs> Um, but uh, hey, a question about, uh, the heist again, how much research did you do on the artwork itself? Were you digging deep into all of the pieces of art, the, the storm on the sea and, um, the concert? How much did you look into this? And I guess in a a way to maybe identify why they took certain pieces that they took?
2: Yeah, I wasn't able to dig too deep into the works of art itself. I, you know, I was kind of hoping that something would uh, stand out to me to sort of find some sort of connection between these pieces other than, you know, them being very valuable pieces. Um, And uh, for some of them, uh, you know, really highlights of the artist's uh, you know, sort of body of work that the museum had. Um, so for the most part, I stuck with you know what the uh, Stuart Gardner Museum had to say about them. You know what a few different um, art historian, you know, websites, Google searches came up with, um, for these works of art. But I just, I, you know, I did think that it was interesting when I would look at the the different pictures that they picked. Some of them were just they were, you know, I, I'm not like a big um art historian, I I took, I took an art history class in college. And that's kind of, I love museums, but that's kind of the extent of it. You know, I didn't find their, the pictures that they picked to be, at least not all of them to be super interesting or, you know, none of them were like, oh, that's something I would need to have in my life or in my, you know, on my wall. But it was, yeah, I mean, they were just, there were, there's a very interesting variety of pictures that they took. But yeah, but as far as finding some sort of connection amongst them, other than them being very important pieces that the museum happened to have, I wasn't really able to come up with a big connection with them. What about you guys?
1: No, I mean, the more you look into them, the, the more confusing it becomes because it it is it is so frustratingly random. And you find out after you've researched uh, Storm on the Sea and the concert and Che Tortoni and you can't seem to find any sort of connection that would give you a reason why they took those it's really frustrating and and then it's like well does it even matter why they took those
0: yeah i don't know i mean Re- rembrandt ha- obviously had a history of being stolen i mean miles connor has connection to two of the items that are stolen in a in a circumstantial way um, being that uh, he had stolen a, a, a Rembrandt from a Boston museum at one point to use it to get himself a lesser prison sentence. And he was a big fan of uh, ch- the Chinese art and uh, vases, like the, uh, the goo. And he had apparently cased it at one point. And so th- that's kind of the only question where, where I say, I think you can maybe point to him having uh, worked on this plan at some point
1: right but he was in prison at the time so add a layer of frustration there so if he did pull this off it was under his direction and he enlisted others but that that dude's definitely not living high on the hog right now no he definitely did not cash in on these uh, by any means so it does it does uh it, it is an interesting um it is an interesting uh like sort of sort of side investigation but no one's ever no one's ever just come out and said something that you know yeah that was that was uh that was a miles connor plan and and i was the guy who went in there and tied up uh rick abbott
0: i mean well except miles connor he's the one who said it was his plan
1: oh that's yeah except miles connor probably had nothing to do with getting a book deal or anything
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the question you don't really know but what, what do you think about um master thieves and steve kirchen's um you know i guess theory about lewis royce
2: Oh yes, he used to sleep in the in the Garden Museum to stay warm at night. I thought that was potentially the most credible-ish theory that I had come across was was his involvement and in the Rossetti gang. That being said, I mean if we're thinking of the profile, for lack of a better word, or for lack of a you know better. Non, not quite so overly used word for thinking about like the profile of the people who were involved in this, they don't really fit that, you know, they're, they're not really art lovers. Um, you know, Royce doesn't seem like the type of person who would want to risk, uh, everything in order to have, you know, let either be a part of, be one of the, the people who went in or be a part of a crime that took 82 minutes to, to complete. um, you know, I mean, it, it was. It's, it's interesting because it involves Whitey Bulger, obviously. It's interesting because it involves the mafia. As I was going through and I was looking through all of the theories for all of these different cases, so there's 10 different cases, there's 10 unsolved cases, everybody's got theories. There's multiple, multiple theories. And you keep coming across people who really just seem to want to get attention. The number of people who have come forward and claimed my... Father was the zodiac, or my father killed the black Dahlia, or I got an uncle or a sister or a brother's cousin who was involved in this unsolved crime is remarkable. So, there's really no shortage of people who maybe they know something but are willing to exaggerate their involvement or what they know, or even just sort of make up out of whole cloth just to sort of get that attention or potentially get a book deal. Or something like that. And that was kind of what I saw when I was hearing when I was reading up on him is that, you know, maybe he had some sort of very mild tangential involvement that he wanted to sort of blow out of plate proportion in order to get something out of it.
1: One thing that we should probably talk about a little bit more, and I believe you referenced it from Stephen Kirchin's book. Master Thieves is uh the incident that took place on January fifteenth, just three months before the Gardner Heist Museum was uh was robbed. The incident about two men dressed as Boston police officers demanding to enter the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. What did you make of that?
2: Oh, the dry run. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Um, which I keep saying. I keep saying fascinating, but I mean this whole thing is just so remarkable. What I found interesting about that, not only that it seems to sort of be a type of dry run and sort of an experimentation of people trying to figure out which museum can I get into with very little force. um, I thought it was really interesting in sort of after the Gardner Museum heist took place, how they then sort of came forward almost as a way of being like, well, see, check out our amazing top shelf security. I mean, it became sort of like a bragging right on some level for, for the other museums because they were like, well, they didn't get in on us. So the problem is with you guys. And it almost seemed to be a way for, for them to, to reassure themselves, I think, on some level that what happened at the Gardner Museum wasn't going to happen to them. Um, Because I would imagine that given how little security these museums were dealing with at the time, you know, they didn't have a bunch of, um, you know, high tech equipment rigged up for the most part, they had people, you know, people getting paid minimum wage um, that were protecting these priceless pieces of art. Um, You know, I think that was a way for them to kind of calm themselves down on some level to be like, well, you know what may have happened to them, it's not going to happen to us. Um, but if it was the same people that were doing it, I think it shows this sort of level of intention and this level of, um, creativity that they were working with. Like they had multiple scenarios that they were working, workshopping. I mean, maybe this was a troop of actors, who knows? Um, but they had, you know, multiple things that they were working on. They're trying to figure out, um, the best way to go about doing this.
0: Wow, that's an interesting one, a, a troupe of actors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it does have like a playful ring to it, even though, you know, the the paintings were brutally cut out of the frames and smashed in some cases. So, yeah, it's definitely a uh, a bizarre crime. Wait, what is like your overall view of it, like having looked at the other ones? Do you think this will ever be solved?
2: I think that it could be solved um, because I'm an optimist. In my, in my dark, dark heart, I'm an optimist. However, I think it's probably going to end up being somebody or some persons who are not necessarily on our radar right now. I mean, I really don't think that there is this alleged mafia involvement, at least not directly. Maybe it was some sort of, you know, three degrees removed association to it. Um, but I do think it's possible. I mean, t- you know, as long as they keep that that reward out there. I mean, that's very motivating for a lot of people who know about it um, or who have the ability to kind of dig into something like this. What I think might end up happening though, is that we find out who did it, but the works of art are no longer available that either they've been destroyed or they're lost or something like that. I mean, what I thought was very telling was, and why I included it, Was when one of the um, art directors or an art historian was explaining sort of the how what how you have to take care of these pieces of art. You know the the steady temperatures that they need. They need steady humidity. Um, They need this sort of stable environment kept away from from light, wrapped in acid-free paper. I mean, I just can't imagine that whoever took these pieces of art and butchered them out of their frames is really taking care of these works of art. So I think you know if the case is ever solved, it'll be bittersweet because I don't think those works of art are coming back.
1: Yeah. You don't think that they're in some uh, underground humidor?
2: I really don't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you make of the current recovery plan being the $10 million for all of the pieces of art returned in, in good condition? We know that they're not in good condition. That's impossible. They were nearly destroyed when they were stolen. What do you make of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that if I was somebody who was really uh, focused on solving this case, hoping to get that money, I would probably want to make it clear at the outset, like, let's say I've solved the thing, to be like, "Hey, I have all the information you need, but uh, you're going to need to still give me the money, despite the artwork not being in great condition." Because I think we we all know that that's that is just it's a pipe dream to think that all of these things are in good condition. You know, maybe the vase or the finale or however you say it are, are going to be in good condition because they're not pieces you know they're not paintings but the paintings themselves I mean let's face it they're 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 probably not doing great
1: we have a uh, another guest on his name is Turbo Paul Hendry and he has developed a plan to return the artwork in a, a piecemeal style so if anyone has access to certain pieces of art that were stolen they can return you know say a Degas and they can get $300,000 300000 for it, and, or they could return the concert and they can get $2 million for it. What do you think of that? Something a little bit more structured for getting the artwork returned as opposed to figuring out who stole the artwork.
2: Oh, so you think that, um, that the people who have the artwork are going to eventually just sort of surreptitiously bring it forward? Is he like a broker for stolen art?
1: Well, he's sort of like a... Yeah, he's like a liaison between criminals and people who are investigating uh art art theft.
2: I want that career.
1: Yeah, he's a he's a former he's he's from the UK and he's a former knocker. So what he would do is knock on the doors and of these rich homes and he would case them from the outside, or perhaps he would get inside if he was uh, cunning enough. And then he would report back to the actual thieves and they would go in and they would do their, uh, their theft. And uh, he's, he retired from that business and went to the other side and started using his powers for good.
2: I like that. You know, I think that that's, that's yeah, I think that's probably something that could happen. And I think that what would, what it would end up being is, I mean, if we think about how old this case is, it's not terribly old. But the people who were involved are probably starting to get up there in age. I'm guessing they were living a, you know, not super safe lifestyle. If they're going and you know robbing museums, uh, it might end up being that somebody comes across in, you know, their their grandfather's or their cousins or their uncle's basement and comes across these works of art and their kind of garage sale style determined oh hey i think i might have some maybe maybe they'll wind up on antiques roadshow who knows but that could also be some way that these works of art are figured out is maybe a few years from now some relative or somebody discovers them in a basement and then goes hey i should bring these ones forward and we'll maybe that's how it'll come about
0: so as a former prosecutor does the reward as stated, is it, is it weird to you? Like if, if I know you're, you're, it's, it's obviously different from what you did, but, um, if there was some situation where someone had the art, do you, you, you would advise them to go to an attorney to speak to the gardener before ever just calling the FBI or something? Or what would, how do you, how would you handle that?
2: <laughs> uh, I, I cannot give legal advice, so if anybody listening has these pieces of art, I'm not giving you legal advice. I think that, you know, I mean, rewards can be a good motivator. From what I have read up on and from what I have researched on, they are seldom the reason that cases are solved. Um, You know, usually what ends up happening is the people that have the information that leads to a case being solved, they were going to come forward anyway. Um, because, you know, at at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do. Usually what they end up doing is giving the case attention um, as opposed to, you know, bringing forward information that the police either didn't already have that leads to it to be solved or, you know, doing something that the police weren't already doing or the FBI wasn't already doing. But I do always think that if you are involved in a criminal enterprise, that it is a good idea to one, keep your mouth shut and two, wear gloves and three, get a lawyer. So <laughs> it seems like they all wore gloves because they didn't have uh, fingerprints found and they've been very good at keeping their mouth shut. So if they did decide to come forward on some re- for some reason, uh, yeah, definitely get a lawyer and, and, and have a go-between on something like this.
1: <laughs> See, even more reason for me to believe that this wasn't, executed by trained criminals the because i i really feel like trained criminals would have used these pieces of art as some sort of bartering tool or some sort of uh get out of they, you know we keep saying it, this get out of jail free card it it almost feels to me like it they were either stolen by people a, a very very small circle of people who just kept their mouths shut about it and and just put the art in some in some crawl space in an attic or something that no one would ever think to look in because why would these people be connected to this, this heist?
2: Yeah. And that's, that's why I am always fascinated when a case is able to go unsolved because it means that somebody didn't talk. And for the most part, people talk. I mean, they just, they do. I mean the, and this is coming from experience of just sort of like the really low level sort of day to day, crimes that happen, it's usually because criminals aren't that smart. I mean, they're, they're, they're resorting to crime for a reason. And in a lot of cases, it's because they don't have a very good education, maybe, or they just, you know, want to find an easy way out of something, or, you know, various other reasons. But, you know, to to get people to not say anything, particularly when you have multiple people involved, you know, we got at least two people, but let's face it, it's that the two people that were there, but let's face it, there was probably more people involved in it. Um, you know, for nobody to have said anything for so long is just so remarkable to me.
1: Yeah, it is really remarkable. And there are so many good eyes looking into this. We have the Indiana Jones of the art recovery world, Arthur Brand. We have Paul Hendry. We have Anthony Amore. We have the FBI. There's so many people looking into this. And and yet there's to to our knowledge, there's nothing which is really perplexing to me.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just it's, it's uh, how is that even possible? I mean, when you when you really think of like, how is that possible? They they were there for over an hour they just, you know, ripped pieces of art from their frames. They grabbed some other pieces of art and then they just disappeared into the night. I mean, the the guards that were there were not able to give any sort of really good identification of these people. Um, You know, the, the security systems didn't really turn up anything helpful. It's just, you could, if it didn't happen, you would think that it wasn't possible.
1: Of all those people that I mentioned, including us the empty frames podcast who do you think is more likely to solve this us that is the correct answer but you can you can maybe uh, dance around it for a little while
2: i mean after you guys um you know obviously you guys would be first um (laughs) you know i think that arthur brand has a good shot at it if only because you know that's sort of his bread and butter um, you know, he's got the resources, he's got the, the connections um, and the experience, whereas he's just all about returning lost pieces of art. Um, and I think that if, if you make that your career and your livelihood, um, you have even more ambition and more uh, driving you to, to solve the case than if you're just someone, you know, like me who's like, hey, I, I could use I could use a few extra million. Wouldn't that be great? Um, although I do also think that, you know, poor, poor Amore, I mean, he he really does he this really gets at him and he really wants to figure out what happened here and he really wants it solved. And I just, I I worry for him that it's just not going to happen in his lifetime.
0: Well, I hope so, you know, for, for everyone's sake, because, uh, the world needs to see those paintings again, regardless of the shape they're in. I mean, it does pain me to think that they might be completely, um, you know, trashed at this point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think they're in somebody's attic or somebody's basement somewhere, um, and who knows if the people in the house even know that they're there.
1: I mean, it's happened before. There have been other cases where this has happened. You have the uh, the case of the stolen de Kooning, which just turned up in um, is a Jerry and Rita altar their their home at a uh, that's right yeah they had a they had a, a uh, what do you call it an auction and there it is stolen paint and two people that would never be suspected of stealing something like that but they had this moment where they're like i think we're going to i think we're going to steal this painting and we're going to go for it Just this unassuming couple
2: yeah and you know what and this is why it's it's a good idea to keep going to garage sales you never know what sort of priceless artifacts you're going to come up with?
1: That is true. Wear a mask and socially distance when you do.
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh, I was shocked. I've have neighbors who have had garage sales, and I was very surprised to see that happening. I was like, "Oh wow, that seems like a interesting idea during these pandemic times."
1: You just need to get that need to get that stuff uh, uncluttered. Just got to unclutter right
0: now. <laughs> uh, well, Shayna, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the the time and the chat about the Gardner heist and your book. Make sure you order your copy of Cold Cases, A True Crime Collection by Shayna Roth.